All right, welcome to the Who Cares About Men's Health Sideshow. This is a fun little episode we're excited about. Survival tips, fact or fiction? You've heard these before. Don't eat snow because if you do, it'll make you more dehydrated. To prevent hyperthermia, uh, you got to get a sleeping bag with somebody else naked. And then uh, this is a good one. After an avalanche, what you should do if you get covered by snow is spit so you know which way to dig to escape. We're going to find out if those are true or not. My name is Scott Singpill on Who Cares About Men's Health. I bring the BS to the show and the MD to my BS is Dr. Troy Matson. Hey, Scott. I am so excited for this because I've heard these myths and I want answers. And producer Mitch is in the mix. I, I also want to know if I should butter my burns at some point. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, our guest, uh, Graham BZ. Is that your last name, BZ? That's that's what we're calling you? My last name is Brant Zawadzki, but it's long and terrible, so BZ is much more. Uh, oh, that's much. That's cool, yeah. Um, and see, Graham, pra- Scott has, I, I have to say this too, Scott has this fear, like this deep fear of mispronouncing people's last names. <laughs> I was so excited for him to pronounce your last name, and then he just he just totally glossed over it, so I'm I'm disappointed. Well, I didn't even know what it was. Even his email says Graham BZ. So like, I didn't know what his last name was. I thought, okay. I don't know. So, it, so here it we are, easy I guess. For you, Scott. Yeah. Anyway, he um, is a, an interesting doctor that uh, practices um, mountain medicine. And that's actually a thing. Tell, tell, tell what, what exactly is mountain medicine? So mountain medicine is a, a subset under wilderness medicine, which is a, a larger umbrella term. And it all refers to medicine in an austere environment. We're actually, I'm part of the Wilderness Medical Society and you'd be surprised how hard it is to come up with a good definition for what wilderness medicine really is. Um, but it's basically uh, when we're providing medical care beyond the scope of your typical medical system and infrastructure. All right. And I actually went to the WMS, the Wilderness Medical Society website, because I was trying to figure out exactly what it was you did. And they have a definition there. Wilderness medicine, also known as expedition medicine, is a practice of medicine where Definitive care is more than one hour away and often days to weeks away, defined by difficult patient access, limited equipment, environmental extremes, decision-making, creative thinking, and improvising are required. So does that sound fair? That is fair. I will tell you that, yeah, I'm part of a committee to currently update that definition. Um, oh, okay. I think, <laughs> I think that that's pretty much, that sums it up adequately for now. So Graham, like what it guess, like when it comes to like expedition medicine, I don't know, all these cool terms, like what's... What's some of the cool stuff that you get to do? I think the best teaching case, uh, one of the most uh, influential cases for me was actually we were doing, um, we were training some Peruvian mountain guides uh, down in Peru. It's kind of a train the trainer model where we go and train the the mountain guides and they go on and train these other folks within their own country. Um, And the course that I went to, we basically, we hike into the base of this 18,000 foot peak and, uh, the base camp is at about 15,000 um, and it's pretty high. So it's pretty high altitude. And some of these folks flew straight up from Lima, which is sea level uh, into Cusco and didn't really take the the proper precautions in terms of acclimatizing before coming up. And so one of our cohort uh, developed pretty severe HAPE, which is high altitude uh, acute pulmonary edema and required more than just oxygen. So we actually had to deploy what's called a Gamov bag, which is a positive pressure, kind of an inflatable, uh, almost like a sleeping bag that you kind of crawl into and then pressurize. And we learn about that a lot of students, especially in, in wilderness medicine. Uh, but what you don't learn about is just how, uh, how much effort it takes to maintain pressure in this bag. And it's basically thinking about uh, using a bike pump or like, or even a f- foot pump, you can use both. And you're 
continuously pumping uh, nonstop for hours to maintain this pressure. So to to keep a person alive, to keep a person alive, and to keep wow. this person yeah, you know, uh, keep their oxygen saturation up, you're just continuously pumping and pressurizing this this bag. And the the idea is that you do that to temporize them to a helicopter evacuation, or at least just improve them enough to that they can then get out on their own. So for about four hours at two o'clock in the morning, we're all just sitting there pumping and keeping this, you know, this bag pressurized so this person could, could oxygenate themselves and improve a bit enough to, to, to get walked out. And that was just the whole experience was uh, definitely a humbling, humbling one. And then trying to get this, this poor uh, person hiked out to, you know, I think it was about a four or five mile hike down to where we could actually access a vehicle and then get them out from there. And all of that happened because this individual went from sea level to 15,000 feet too fast without actually taking intermediate steps to get their body used to it. Exactly. Wow. And how long would that normally take to get used to something like that? Uh, so there's different, it kind of depends on your, your strategy. There's different strategies for acclimatization. Uh, I think if for the course we were doing, we would, you know, recommend up to two weeks to really properly acclimatize, um, I think taking up to four to six days for that level of transition is kind of the minimum that you'd recommend. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to these uh, myths here, these questions. We're going to throw these out here, and I thought maybe we could all just kind of play along. Now, I don't know, Troy, if you if you know some of these answers, since you've got the MD here, uh, don't, don't participate. Um, but I don't. Mitch, That's why I want to know the answers. Okay. Yeah, these are, right. these are questions we talked about, and I've heard these, and I some of these I'm, I'm really curious. All right, so the first one. Don't eat snow if you're out in the wilderness and you don't have any water because it'll actually make you more dehydrated. So this is one of those situations. Maybe you're out. It's wintertime. Uh, you've ran out of water. You're not near a, a water source. Uh, you're not near your car and you need to survive. Should you eat snow or not? This says you should not. I think that sounds silly. That's my take. Mitch, what do you think? I guess I don't understand how it would make you more dehydrated. Like for me, that's that's the thing is it's like it's water it's just super cold water right like what on earth is in the <laughs> snow that's gonna make you more dehydrated it's well, like when is... well no it was like when coconut water came out does anyone remember when like the coconut water craze was going i was doing some volunteer work up at sundance and the lady i was working with she's like oh coconut water hydrates you better than water and i'm like that doesn't make any sense so on the flip side <laughs> we now have snow and i'm like how does it dehydrate you if it's water so. Well, this is what I've heard, though, Mitch. The rationale is that, you know, the water content of snow is so low, especially here in Utah, where it's super dry, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that it takes more effort and uses more energy to produce that water, just like putting snow in your mouth, than, than it really produces water. So that's that's the rationale I've heard. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've heard. Hmm. All right. We heard Graham chuckling a couple of times. So. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see if that's his tell or not. Uh, yeah. Is that true True word? or not? Yeah. I, I do like, I never, I don't think anyone's ever looked at drinking snow in the, in the Sierras versus Utah. And sit, wonder yeah. if they're, it's, it's a drier. Yeah, like a yeah dry exactly. <laughs> um, but I think Troy is, is pretty spot on. So the problem with, so snow is mostly air. There's really, especially again here in Utah. Uh, so you'd need to eat about like, I think eight to 10 quarts of snow to meet the same, you know, amount of just liquid water. And so that actually, again, is it's uh, much colder than body temperature. So every time you're putting that snow in your mouth, your body's spending energy to melt that snow so then you can drink it. And that burns calories and in the end does consume more, uh, more total body volume water than you actually are receiving for it. So hmm. point to Troy, that is right. So what you want to so do. This is true. 
That so is th- true. So I'm going I'm wow. to say I can't take credit for this because I never would have believed it. And then I saw it in a Sundance film. Yeah. And in the Sundance <laughs> film, it was like these guys were lost out in the snow. And one guy said to the other guy, you know, this guy was like super dehydrated. He's like, you can't eat the snow. It's going to make you more dehydrated. It just takes up too much energy. You can't do it. I was like, that's stupid. And then I thought (laughs) about it more and I was like, maybe it makes sense because it's true. You just don't get a lot of water out of snow. Like the water content is really low. Yeah. And to make the connection um, by burning energy requires in that chemical process, water is what we're saying, right? That's why it uses more water. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah. Got to go back to my cellular biology class that I never took. So what should you do instead? (laughs) (laughs) So what you want to do is you want to find another way to melt the snow that's not using your your own body's energy. So if you can uh, heat the snow up in any way, if you can, uh, you know, even just leaving it at the sun and a spot where it can be melted, then you can drink the liquid, uh, you know, melted snow. And that's going to be the best way you can hydrate. What All about right. Graham? I'm, I'm going to ask this because I know Scott's thinking it. What if you had a container and you filled it with snow and then you peed yeah. on the snow? Oh. And, <laughs> what? What? And then the warmth from the urine, you know, you're going to have no. still some urine in there. Is is that just going to be useless? Is it just going to be just too? Well, but yeah. no, you you pee on the okay. container if you've got the container and then uh, hopefully the heat transmits. And, I don't know. Oh. Do you think it would? You know, that is an excellent question. I think so. It would depend on how dehydrated your urine was to begin with. I think because yeah. d- dilute yeah. urine is you're still going to be able to pull. And this is always we always get asked this: Can you drink your urine if you're dehydrated? And the answer is, yeah. if you're coming from a hydrated status, and, well, an answer uh, I should say, if you're, if you're hydrated, you can kind of drink your urine over a couple cycles, at, and before it really starts uh, ruining your kidneys and other things, as you're getting you know more and more distillate. Um, so if you're pretty hydrated to begin with you're, that's already urine that you've heated up and you've used those calories already. You might as well put it in the, in the snow and dehydrate, dilute that urine a bit. And if you're in dire straits, uh, I can think of, I think it's, in, in, that's an ingenious way to potentially temporarily hydrate yourself. So maybe I, it I, would work then. Yeah. Maybe yeah, the, I'd say. it's, it's an, ob- it's, it's better than drinking your urine. It sounds like, at least if you like have a big old thing of snow and you can pee in it or so, I don't know, again, hypothetical here. I'm not, not recommending it. Yeah. Exactly. I think <laughs> it's, it's last, <laughs> last resort, Hail Mary. Don't do this. Yeah. Don't do this every time you're out skiing. <laughs> yeah, use the sun. Try to use the sun's energy first. The I sun, think would be yeah. a good. <laughs> if you are going to say, if you're going to use a container to try to melt snow, try to, you know, you want half the, the back half of that container to be, you know, use, use uh, dark clothing or, you know, something that's reflective so that that energy isn't just passing through the snow. So you're kind of trapping the heat energy in that container as well. Oh, okay. So okay. yeah. Okay. That makes it's sense. Kind of, right. kind of dark container or something there. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah. All right. Myth number two, to prevent hypothermia, um, you, you need to get in the person who has hypothermia naked into a sleeping bag that and that that body temperature helps warm them up as opposed to just getting in clothed because you wouldn't be transmitting enough heat so the question is is that just a clever pickup line or is that a legitimate survival strategy graham i i don't want to discourage anyone from crawling into a sleeping bag naked with another person if that's what seems like the right you know the uh the right thing to do but it is it will help it'll definitely help warm someone up faster than just putting them in a sleeping bag and clothes by themselves uh because you're you're going to help transmit again through uh you're going to help heat that that sleeping bag and help raise the temperature of that environment faster so you getting into that sleeping bag with that person will definitely help um the reason people we say get in naked is because you the way a sleeping bag works it radiates heat back uh back at you and if you have if you're wearing a lot of clothes together then you're kind of trapping that heat in 
uh, under your clothes and it's not rating to that person as effectively. Um, so technically, yes, that is be the fastest way to warm someone up. Do you need to do that? Uh, probably not. <laughs> there are, again, other ways to do it. I think putting someone in a sleeping bag with, again, like a, a heated bottle of water uh, or another heat source uh, can you know, act in the same way. Um, the other thing the, the really the best thing to do to warm someone up if they're not uh, comatose, if they're still, you know, awake and alert is to use their own um, body thermodynamics. So I could get them active, get them doing jumping jacks, get them moving. Uh, if they are in the sleeping bag, have them, you know, uh, moving up and down and, and doing kind of snow angels in that sleeping bag as much as possible to, to help burn calories as well from the inside. So uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, but if you're going to be in the sleeping bag with someone, uh, you also want to be active in that sleeping bag. (laughs) (laughs) There's just so much more to this. And this is one of those things I heard too. Like this is one they teach you in Boy Scouts. It's like, if this ever happens, you have to, you know, and it's just like, huh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, Uh, but it's, uh, it sounds like there are other alternatives and maybe better alternatives. Like you said, like a, you know, like heated water bottle or something like that to really, get the job done, but, uh, sounds like it, you know, it makes sense if, if you're in that situation, you have to do it. And again, totally naked is probably a bit dramatic. Uh, you still want, you don't want to be both in the sleeping bag, but also covered in all your winter gear. You know, if you're in long johns and underwear, that's gonna, you know, that will be equally as effective. All right. Question number three, after an avalanche, if you get trapped in an avalanche, uh, in order to know which way to dig to escape, you should spit because then the spit's going to go down because that's what gravity does is it pulls things down. Mitch, what do you think? Yes or no? When we were doing our pre-production, it's the first time I've ever heard of this. And I guess I would never would have thought to that. I guess you would get all turned around, but spitting is the last thing I could, I would think of doing to try to figure out which way was up or down. Like, yeah. I guess that's, that's my first question. Like when trapped in an avalanche, do you get tossed around enough that you could, that you n- don't know which way to dig? Yeah, hold hold on hold on that answer, Graham. Let's go to Troy. Okay. Uh, yeah, and this is one I have heard for years. Like, and I don't know if it's also one of those things people just say, but it does make sense. You know, if you're tossed around in an avalanche, you may not know which way is up. And I've heard that that uh, yeah, if you want to know which way is up, spit because then if the spit just falls back on your face, you know your face is facing up. And if it falls to one side, you know, the other way is up. If it falls straight down, you know, that up is back behind your head. Obviously, there are certain logistical issues if you are trapped in an avalanche. But, <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably the bigger question. But I'm, I'm curious, Graham. Yeah, is this something you've heard or something you've ever recommended? So I think the, the bigger question, so the first question is, can you get tumbled around enough to not know which way is up or down? Uh, I've never been in an avalanche, but talking to those who have, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, I mean, if you've ever been just even in a, in a whiteout, uh, you know, you can kind of get vertigo and and lose your sense of of you know your body in space. So you can definitely be disoriented like that. Uh, the the bigger question is what can you actually do about it? Um, so we talked a bit about how snow is roughly one tenth the density of water, uh, and that again varies by the type of snow and where you are and how dry it is, et cetera. Um, but when you think about an avalanche, so snow just sitting on the ground is uh, is maybe you know say let's say one tenth the density of water. Once that avalanche is set off and all that snow, you know, is sliding down the hill and then sets at the bottom, uh, that all that snow is now compacted and the density has, has, has increased, has at least doubled. If, uh, there's some studies that show that it can, it can go, um, significantly more than that. And so 
uh, that snow is no longer that nice fluffy Utah powder we like to play in. That is now basically, for all intents and purposes, concrete. And so even if you knew which way was up or down, the ability to dig yourself out is basically is more or less impossible. Um, just being under, uh, you know, a foot of cubic snow is has can translate into hundreds of pounds uh, that are on your body. And so uh, I think a better way to know which way to dig out is if you can move any part of your body, it's probably not under a, it's under the least amount of snow or it's even sticking out of the snow. And that's the direction you'd want to go if you can move anything. Uh, but what unfortunately kills a lot of uh, avalanche victims, even when th- those are that are only partially buried, meaning that a part of their body is still sticking out of the snow or just very shallow, a shallow burial is even in a shallow burial, shallow burial, people just can't dig themselves out. They don't have that ability. And that's, that's an interesting thing too. And Graham, I know, you know, um, I think we often have this image that, that, you know, people get covered in avalanches and they get tossed around and hit trees and rocks and they die from that. But I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit there, like what percent of people actually die from that versus just die because they're stuck there and they just can't get out? Yeah. So uh, that's a great question, Troy. We looked at this uh, locally here in Utah. And what happens is we actually compare a lot of our avalanche data in the US and, and North America to European data. And we see a stark difference uh, in, the, in the rates of trauma for that exact reason. Um, a lot of avalanches and, and backcountry terrain in the Alps and other parts of Europe happens well above tree line. And so there are a lot fewer uh, obstacles to strike, uh, such as trees, boulders, things like that. And so we see a lot more deaths that are due to purely asphyxiation from suffocation you know, under the snow versus uh, patients here in the U.S. where maybe the rescuers get to them in time, but they've suffered severe traumatic, severe traumatic injuries, which have uh, led to their decline. So it's a, it's a great question. We, we see much higher incidence of trauma with avalanche here in the North America than in some other parts of the world. Interesting. It sounds like bottom line, you can spit if you want to spit. And maybe maybe <laughs> right. that'll let you know which way is up. But uh, it sounds like the more you... wet face. Just going to have a wet face. Yeah, it's probably not going to help a whole lot. Um, but yeah, I like what you said, though, about if there's a body part that moves, it's probably by the surface or it's it's not covered. And if you can move any direction, that's the direction you want to go. Exactly. If if you are in that phase where maybe the the slide is slowing but hasn't fully set up yet, and you can you can still move move any part of your body. This you probably heard of this idea of swimming uh, with the, with the avalanche, and and that actually has a lot of credence. So we know that larger particles hmm. float to the top. We, if you think of uh, an avalanche, it's kind of laminar flow of particles. So the same way we call it, you know the Brazil nut effect that in a bag of nuts, the bigger nuts always float to the top or in granola, the, the bigger clumps are always at the top. And by the time you're at the end of the bag, it's all like the crumbs, at the bottom, same thing happens in an avalanche. So you want to make yourself as big as possible and you want to try to push all those particles as many as they can below you so you can float on top. Um, so if you can do that to stay, stay shallow in the, in the pack, that's great. And then another thing to do is try to, if, as a last resort, try to make as much space around your head to make a, a pocket of air that you can use uh, to survive longer than you might otherwise. So one of the things we look for in avalanche rescue uh, to determine if a patient has a better chance of survival is if they have an air pocket around their face or if there's any snow impacted in their mouth. Because if there's snow in the mouth uh, or uh, what we call an ice mask uh, where the the snow in front of the face is kind of melted and then refrozen and sealed off. Then that patient has a lot, le- a lot lower chance of survival because they've had less, less air to breathe while waiting for rescue. It sounds like just keep moving. You can move. <laughs> yeah. Move as long as, as much as you can, as long as you can, as long as you can. Yeah. Hopefully none of us are ever in that situation, but 
Yeah, sounds terrifying. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely horrible. Yeah, that just yeah. sounds awful. Yeah. I will say that the more I've learned about avalanche uh, safety and snow science, uh, you, I thought I would be able to use that to go further in the backcountry and do cooler things. And it's had the exact opposite effect. I'm much more conservative than I ever yeah. was uh, wow. before I recognized the danger. I can now that you know, yeah. the danger the danger is more than what uh, the average layperson realizes then is what I'm getting from you. Yeah, and I, I think uh, we've made a lot of strides in avalanche science and snow safety, and we have these decision rules people use and what we call obvious clues where people uh, look at terrain features and try to determine what the risk of an avalanche is. And those are all fantastic uh, things, but I think they also sometimes give people a false sense of security in terms of thinking that they can't be in an avalanche if those rules say that it's safe, but the, the opposite is true, that uh, an avalanche can happen anywhere at any time. And I think a lot of us uh, get very lucky when we're recreating in the backcountry, and we, we think that that translates into good choices when it's just the, the luck of the, that nature provided us that day. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, using some of your mountain medicine experience to talk talk us through these rumors and uh, some good tips there, too, for any of our listeners that might happen to like to go out and recreate in the backcountry. We sure appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for listening and thanks for caring about men's health. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 